And welcome back everyone to CDY Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen, and joining me now just in time for Halloween, folks, is a perfect gift. Ian Rogers joins us to talk about his recently released Every House is Haunted. This is a collection of 22 rather mind-bending horror stories. I've just got started reading this thing. Uh, the first story is terrifying, and I love it. Ian, welcome to the show. It is so cool to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Now, there's so much to, to dive into here, but I want to start with the big news, okay? The really, really big news that one of your stories is coming to Netflix pretty soon because this, this, was, re this was recently announced that the book was optioned by Sam fucking Raimi. <laughs> and your story, The House on Ashley Avenue, is currently in development at Netflix Script by Jason Pagan and Andrew Dushman. I apologize if I screw the names up. I really apologize. And directed by Cord Hardy, who helmed The Nun and Gangs of London. Jeez, you, you can't go wrong with this situation, sir. Yeah, he, al he also, his directorial debut is, a, is actually a horror movie. Um, it's almost like a modern fairy tale called The Hollow. And it's worth tracking down if you haven't seen it. Perfect for the Halloween season. It's, uh, it's, um kind of like a woodsy supernatural fairy tale thing with practical special effects strongly strongly recommend checking it out oh my god what was your reaction when you got this news that your that one of your stories was now optioned for a film on netflix well i gotta tell you that you're the first person who has actually referred to it as we do around our house here which is sam fucking Raimi. like that's what? actually what we say here you so whenever 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 I'm down about my career or, or there's ups and downs, because even even when you've got uh, a Netflix deal, I mean, it's it's not a golden ticket. You still have to work. And that's not a problem for me. I love to work. Um, but everyone thinks it's easy. Everyone's rolling out the red carpet and it's not. So there's a lot. There's still ups and downs. But I tell you, whenever I get down, my, my wife is there to remind me and say, you know what? Sam fucking Raimi knows who you are. He is a fan of your work. You have a signed Evil Dead poster hanging on your office wall. Uh, it's actually right behind me, um, that says, you know, he's excited to be working with you on your excellent book. Like, those are his words. So it's um, it's kind of weird that, I mean, you, you want to find out, like, the the struggling artiste or the, 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 the depressed artiste is that you can still feel upset even though you've got that stuff going for you but that's just the very nature i'm not ungrateful but it's it's a hard gig it doesn't matter what you're doing in the creative arts that you still have your ups and downs there's there's no such thing as a free lunch right so um that's my long way of saying that i'm still really really excited but at the same time i don't i don't rest on my laurels i'm still working like a dog trying to get my stuff out there still writing like crazy um but i can tell you uh without hyperbole that you know being able to have Raimi produce this movie and be able to have him call call him a fan of my work is is, is a dream come true. I mean, my I grew up on horror movies. My parents really didn't believe in censoring us as kids within reason. We were allowed to watch more or less anything that we wanted, and uh, I mean, the rule in our house was as far as horror movies go, um, you can watch whatever you want, but if the moment you have a nightmare, you're cut off. Was basically the rule. So that which is fair, you know, you don't want to freak the kids out. But I think because we knew it wasn't real, because it was presented in that way, there wasn't a lot of stuff that really bothered my sister and I um, until we watched the original Evil Dead. Which, which if you've seen it, um, it's an indie film. I think like even Raimi was like 21 when he made it, so it, it almost looks like a found footage film. It felt very real to us. So. That was like one of the very few movies. It's the only one in my memory that I could recall as having to turn off halfway through and finish watching the following morning by the bright light of day. 
So um, I actually got to tell uh, Sam that story, which was which was really cool because I wanted him to know that you know him optioning this book or or giving me a blurb for uh, for the for the new edition that Cemetery Dance is doing. It's really great, but it wasn't like I'm just doing that for my career. It's not like, hey, this is gonna be this is gonna be great for sales. Like I wanted him to know that this really meant something to me on a personal level. This wasn't just um, something from a business point of view. That I'm a huge fan of his work. I you know I love the Evil Dead movies. Um, I'm a massive Spider-Man fan. So when he did the Spider-Man movies, it was like a match made in heaven. You know, like uh, every year for Halloween, I dress up for Hall- uh, uh, as Spider-Man for the kids in the neighborhood. You know, I did it a couple of years and then. I stopped one year and all the kids in the neighborhood were all really upset when I didn't do it because apparently according to the parents, this is where they thought Spider-Man lived because I was doing it every year. So sure enough, I had to start doing it again. And I can tell you, especially two years into the pandemic, it's the only reason um, I work out is so that I can fit into that Spider-Man costume every year. You know, like they, they don't want to see a pop belly dad bod Spider-Man, you know, so it's uh, on on many levels. I mean, this is this has been a real, real dream come true. Um, and the fact that I'm actually involved in the process, I'm actually working on the film as a consultant, um, having Cemetery Dance, you know, reissuing the book with some awesome new cover artwork. Uh, it's going to be out on, I think, the 21st. Um, there is, you know, movie news sort of as it goes along. Some stuff I can talk about, some stuff I can't like you can with any movie and process. Right. But uh, all I can say uh, is that it, it's 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 moving along, <laughs> you know, it's getting there, uh, inching towards uh, uh, production. Um, yeah, so very very excited. That is such amazing news. I mean, like, let, I mean, let's start with, of course, again, Sam fucking Ramy, and he should always be introduced that way. You know, whenever he <laughs> enters a room, be like a reservation, a party or three under Sam fucking Ramy. Oh, this way, tables mm-hmm, over here. Absolutely. Well, you know, and you could say it like that. And not only would he not be offended, but it wouldn't be a sense of like, of like, do you know who I am? It's just because he's so amazing. And I can tell you with my lim- my limited contact that I've had with him, he is as cool. He is as down to earth, as humble and as modest as everyone, ever, as everyone says, even to this day, even though he's made billions of dollars for the Hollywood machine, he still loves horror. He, even as a producer, because he's producing this movie, he's not directing it, but there's some producers where they don't really have a lot of involvement in the process. They just put their name on it. He is hardcore involved in this. He was the one that optioned this book. He was the one that vetted the director, the screenwriter. So he he is heavily, heavily involved in, in this movie. Oh man, I, uh, that is so, God. And and you getting to be a, a consultant, what does that mean exactly? Um, funnily enough, uh, I actually asked my manager that and I said, you know, like, I, cause again, I, I'm, I'm happy to work, you know, like I want to work, I want to be involved in, in, in this movie. Um, but uh, like a lot of contracts, there's a lot of legalese and some stuff is vague. So I asked my manager, Trevor, I said, you know, what, what, what do I need to do as a, as a consultant? You know, like, uh, you know, do I need to come on set? Is it just going to be like through zoom or emails? Are they going to ask me anything? And I'm talking to him on the phone and there, there, there's a pause on the phone line. And my manager is like, he, he's in LA. He's your, he's your classic Hollywood manager. There's this pause on the line. He goes, Ian, you just cashed the fucking check. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, that's fine. But I mean, I'm, I'm happy to do whatever. It's like, I'm not there to step on anyone's toes. This is their thing. I've been very emphatic that the movie is always different from the book in some way, shape or form. It needs to be, frankly. Um, I'm not there to sort of uh, point out what's different or tell them what to do. I'm happy to have any involvement because usually the writer's not involved at all, right? They just sort of, you take the money and go. And and I would have been happy with that as well. But 
um, this the, the consultancy deal was something with with Ramey and his people. It wasn't from Netflix. So he obviously thinks I have something that I can contribute. So whatever he asks me to do, whether it's talking about you know stuff on the casting or or the production itself, or if it's just like you know, hey Ian, can you go get some coffees for everybody? I'm happy to do whatever <laughs> they want me to do. <laughs> exactly. Oh God, I I would love to be to work on a set, even if I was just doing like gopher work. I'd be like happy, dude. Like, oh my God, I get to work with Sam Raimi. That's amazing. And absolutely. Yeah, you know, you do bring up a good point though, because a lot of times when these books get optioned for you know TV shows or movies, it's usually okay. We're optioning it. Here's your money. Have fun. You know. But that you get to be involved. I mean, like uh, like you said, Sam must really think highly of you to say, you know what? He needs to be a part of the process. Yeah, I, I like to think so. I mean, there's a lot of people where um, uh, I actually I actually have a friend who told me that a, a studio paid him more money to not be involved in the process. So I mean, it does it does happen, right? Mostly they just sort of option they do their own thing, and and that's fine. But right right from the get go, when when this story was optioned several years ago by um, NBC Universal, when it was going to be a TV show at first. Um, Again, they wanted me to be involved. It was all done through a, a producer, Roy Lee, who's a phenomenal producer. He's basically responsible for all of the American remakes of the Japanese horror movies, like The Ring, The Grudge, wow. um, The Lake House. Uh, not, not just horror movies, like like The Lake House, the Keanu Reeves movie, uh, The Departed, the Scorsese movie. Ooh, like, yeah. he he's responsible for for all of those. Like, he is he's a really really nice guy, and he has been such a big champion. Of, of my work so when we we met um 10 years ago actually it was 10 years ago last month we met in toronto he was in town because he was producing the remake of um poltergeist and so we met at his uh at his hotel um uh downtown toronto and after we talked for a while we were just talking about movies things that scare us and um had this really nice conversation and at the end of it he said uh you know he was already optioning the story but then he asked if i'd be interested in writing what they called uh the show notes for this TV series, which is kind of like a Bible. So I said, yeah, sure. And he said, well, um, can you get it to me in two weeks? And I was like, uh, sure. Because you just, say, you just say yes to everything when they ask you something like that. So so I wrote what I could. I wrote a 40-page document. And it's just like characters, uh, story arcs, episode ideas, as much as you could just dump into this document. It's sort of like just a catch-all drawer of, uh, of, of notes for this prospective TV show. And... Um, it was great. They ended up optioning those notes as well as uh, the story at that time for this TV show. So they they wrote a pilot, and um, like a lot with a lot of these um, um, TV shows, uh, that's that's where it stopped. Uh, that's the, the process stopped. They didn't they didn't even shoot the pilot. It just didn't end up happening. But um, it floundered there for a few years, and then um, the as I was as I was told later on, this was a, would have been about three years ago now. Um, uh, Roy was um, talking to Sam because they were they were friends. I think they actually produced the the uh, the Poltergeist um, remake together. Uh, I'm not sure if that's how they met her. No, no, I think they actually met when they were doing the Grudge because I think Ramey produced that as well years years even before that. But anyway, they were they were getting together, and Roy told Sam about um, my story, the house on Ashley Avenue, and said. Um, here's a story I like. Uh, I tried to do it as a TV show, but I couldn't get it made. Maybe you want to try it as a movie. So Sam read the story and liked it. And he contact his people contacted me and said, you know, are the rights for this available? And I said, I said, yes, but they're sort of, the story's kind of connected to these other stories in the collection. So he said, okay, we'll send me the collection. So I sent him the whole book, every house is haunted. And he, uh, his people just got back to me and they said, uh, okay, well, we'll just take the whole thing. So, um, I was like, Hey, that's great. 
And then they made the consultancy deal with me around the same time. So this this story has had a real, real journey from when I first wrote it, like 15, almost 20 years ago to, you know, it being appearing in the collection. It was picked up for Best Horror of the Year by Ellen Datlow. She um, recommended it to Roy Lee because she knew Roy Lee. Roy Lee contacted me. They tried to do the TV show. It didn't work. Years later, he told Rainey about it. Rainey contacted me. And now here we are, you know. Man, man, man. <laughs> well, and the whole point of that is that you can't predict any of it. When, like, that's the best thing. When you, when you hear these kinds of stories, there's really nothing that you can do. It's certainly nothing that you could replicate. So if someone was recommending to me, like, oh, what could, what could I do to get my story made? It's like, you, all you, all, the only thing that you have control over is writing the best story that you possibly can and trying to get it out to as broad an audience as, you, as possible. So that's, that's all you can do. It's, the rest is like luck, timing, the fates, whatever you want to call it. So instead of trying to get really fixated on getting your work in front of these people and, you know, oh, you know, can I send this to you? Can I just trust you? Just, just focus on writing a really good story and then getting it published. That, that's all you can do. Anything else, will, you'll, you'll go crazy trying to, uh, trying to control the uncontrollable essentially. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm actually curious. This is entirely like, like a hypothetical game we're, we're playing here. No, no bearing on the actual film. This is no spoilers, no releases. This is not giving insider info folks. Okay. We ain't gonna do that here, but who do you, who would be your ideal cast for this thing? Can we talk about that? <laughs> because they've already been throwing around names. It's really hard to, which I obviously can't say anything about because yes. it's not like people have actually been approached or anything as far as I know, but there's definitely been names that have been thrown around. Um, so I'm obviously it's hard for me because those are the people that I would be thinking of. Okay. Now I have to think of someone completely different. If for no other reason, just to, just to throw off, you know, any right. people that I don't want to uh, rave you go people coming back to me and say, we heard this podcast. You're not supposed to say anything about that stuff. Um, oh my God. Yeah. You know what? The, the the two primary characters in in these stories, because uh, um, there's there's a series of them. House on Ashley Avenue is just the first one, but the two the two primary characters are are an older um, insurance investigator uh, named Charles, and a a younger uh, sort of late teens, early twenties um, uh, female psychic named uh, Sally. So when when I first envisioned, actually this is perfect. When I, when I first envisioned it as a TV series, the way I was describing the characters in my show notes and in, in the series Bible was I didn't want a um, for the older guy. I didn't want anyone who looked too too pretty Hollywood wide. I wanted someone who looked a bit like a hound dog, a bit sort of weathered. So my my only notes for it again, I don't have any control over casting. But when you're writing these these notes, you're trying to create an image in their mind, right? So like I have I have no say over casting, but it's like hey, this is how I picture them. So for the older uh, investigator character, I always I said like I love Liam Neeson, but I said I picture him being more of a char of a of a uh, what's his name Rutger Hauer, sort of a you know like an older you know like he's he doesn't have he's not bad looking don't get me wrong but I, I think like more Rutger Hauer less Liam Neeson if you're gonna go for that older kind of. Uh, uh, a bit weathered, you know, like not not too urbane, but he, he looks like he's been through some stuff. Um, and for the younger character, uh, it, it was hard because, I mean, there's so many uh, uh, great um, uh, young actors uh, coming up and coming right now. Um, I think the safe one for me to say, and it's going to be a total cop out because everyone knows how fabulous she is. But I, I'd say Florence Pugh for, uh, for the Sally character, just because she has such a range. You know, I mean, she's someone who... 
I mean, you forget about her whole body work. Just look at her in Midsummer and and watch her her emotional range where she goes from this to that to this, where it's just it's like an actor's studio in one movie, right? So, um, yeah, those those would be would be my picks, I would say. And I and I realize Rutger Hauer is no longer with us, but you know, it's Dreamcasting. You know? yeah, exactly. This is entirely. This is just a game. It's a fun little game. Mm-hmm. Actually, what I was thinking, given your description, was the late Jerry Orbach would be perfect for that. Oh I think. yeah. Because he, he had yeah, that you know, hound was, dog look to him, you know? Right. Absolutely. Like, Jerry Jorobach was great. And, was, and um, maybe the reason you're thinking of him is the same reason I am is because um, I've been seeing him popping up in tweets um, with Angela Lansbury, who just passed away. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and stuff that they did together. I think they were both in Beauty and the Beast. So it was like, right, Jerry Orbach, I love him. He's great. Yeah, you know? exactly. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. All right. You know what? I feel like we could kind of like just nerd out on Samory and Netflix for this entire episode. I, I do want to ask, though, is this like, do you feel like this is a career peak for you getting to do this? You know what? It's, it's funny. Like, it, it is and it isn't. Um, I, I wrote a, a fairly lengthy essay last year. I don't, I'm, I don't blog much anymore because no one really blogs much anymore. Social media kind of killed blogs, right? Because you can sort of give the information on these networks now. So why would you have to go to 20 different blogs every day to catch up with people? So um, I wrote this article for my website last year, and it was, it was basically describing about my experience for the first little while when the Netflix news dropped, because of course it was everywhere, you know, and it was suddenly, um, I'm making this movie, um, with, uh, with Ramey and Netflix, there was a big bidding war for it. They decided to go with Netflix. It's a huge opportunity. Everyone was celebrating, obviously within reason. I'm very excited, but at the same time, it wasn't like, um, I had all these, you know, publishers reaching out to me and saying, Hey, you know, are you shopping around any, any novels? I'd love to see them. Or, or editors saying, you know, hey, we want to invite you to this invite-only anthology. There was, there was actually nothing. So that was a little, um, I wouldn't even say upsetting, but it was just a little surprising when you see other people who seem to get a lot more for a lot less, I guess. And again, it wasn't really, it wasn't really bitter because I'd never really see myself as, as in competition with other writers. I think there's plenty of room at the table for everyone. We're all doing different things. Um, I just want to do the best work that I can. I'm really excited about my work. I don't want to get fixated on what other people are doing or whether or not it's better than mine. It's um, it, it can just lead you down this path of bitterness and then it becomes, you become paranoid and everything suddenly becomes a conspiracy about why your work isn't selling. I, I just, I just don't want to be that way. You know, it's, it's not who I am as a person, but at the same time, it was like, yeah, I thought there'd be a, a, at least a bit more um, sort of a, uh, uh, would come from this announcement. So what, what my agent tells me is that, well, you know, lots of stuff is optioned. So for some people, it's not really big news, even though it's you've got Netflix and Sam Raimi as these two really big things. So I, I think once the movie actually goes into production and then, you know, casting is announced and then, you know, there's some behind the scenes stuff and then a trailer drops, like the the, the, the series of steps towards release, I think maybe then there'll be a bit more... Um, of a light shine on me in my career. Cause I mean, I've got stuff that's out there now. There's stuff that's available. There's stories that people can read online for free. Um, but again, it's hard to really judge um, how much of an impact you're really making, you know, and, and that can be frustrating for, for any writer. But that was the reason why I wrote this, uh, this, this essay was because I didn't want anyone to think that I was on easy street now because of this. And um I'm sort of paraphrasing myself here. I, I believe I said it in, in some way that um, 
I'm, I'm not up on my high horse, you know, like, uh, I was, I was never on that horse in the first place, you know, like it's, uh, don't, don't feel sorry for a guy with a Netflix deal, but also don't assume that I've got publishers coming out of the woodwork wanting to, you know, snatch up everything that I'm doing. Not, not a one, not nothing, you know? So, uh, and that's fine. You know, like, uh, I'm right in, in a lot of ways, it hasn't really changed anything. So, um, I'm still writing. I, I've got a good agent. I've got a good manager for my films and TV stuff. And um, in a way, it sort of keeps you honest, you know. So um, I don't really think I was really in danger of it all going to my head. I think I'm I'm uh, I'm pretty level headed in that way. And, I, and I've got a good support system. I've got a wife who just will not allow that to happen, even if I did get a giant ego. But like a lot of people in this business. Um, we we have the old uh, what's called imposter syndrome, you know, so where you don't feel like you deserve your success or you get really depressed about what you do, you know, no matter how good it is. So I'm fortunate in the sense that I really love what I do and I can really um, uh, I can sort of divest that from how much I'm published or if I get awards or if I don't get awards. I, I just I get, I get really excited about about the next story that I'm working on. And I, I hope that it sells. And I'm, I'm always a little surprised when it doesn't because you're like, hey, I was really proud of that. But everything's subjective, you know, everything is subjective. But I've had I've had a lot of uh, great stories published. Um, I've had a, a lot of success. And as a friend of mine said, um, in terms of the the Netflix thing with Rainey, he says, like, you know, you've accomplished something that 99 percent of other writers will never do in their entire career, like writers who have been doing who have been at it for 30 years. And they've never had anything like that. They've never had options or they've never had, you know, Sam Raimi being a fan of your work. And again, for me, that was just cool enough. Like if I decide to never publish again tomorrow, I'll still have that. You know, you don't that doesn't go away. You still have those things. And so you have to really hold on to your achievements and 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 the work that that has to be the focus is that you have to remember why you're doing this in the first place, because you wanted to tell stories. You know, that's, yeah. that's why I do it. I think I think that that's a very very good point. Yeah, you're right. Doom, enough said. E- episode over. We're gonna pack it in now. No, no. Roll credits. <laughs> hey, there you go. There you go. No, no. We we got a lot more to talk about, folks. So let us go back to the book itself. Okay. Um, as you mentioned earlier, um, October twenty first. Uh, I know it is currently available for a pre order, but it actually yes. hits the uh, the store shelves on the twenty first. Who are good friends at Cemetery Dance publications you've heard the name a lot folks because we're doing this like series of interviews with a lot of their amazing authors so buckle in there's there's a, there's definitely a lot more to come i want to talk about the stories themselves because this is 22 stories what was the first one of the group that you actually wrote oh the first one well actually you know what i do i, I know the first one that i sold anyway i could i could tell you that it would, i would have to actually go back to my notes and figure out which one i actually wrote first but uh, yeah, 22 stories. Uh, the collection embodies the first five years of my, my published publishing career, which is why when we did the reprint, I didn't want to add anything to it. Um, I didn't. I, I, there's some new story notes in there. There's some new cover art, but I wanted it to still be the core, um, the same stories, because it's still even though it's a reprint, it still represents those those first five years of myself as a published writer. And the first story that I sold, and I think it was the first story that I sold for, for actual money, not just uh, contributors' copies, was um, called The Tattletale. And it's it's actually a fairly weird story in the collection. There's not a lot that would really like it. It's, it's about a boy who uh, um, uh, gets a demon for a, a school talent contest. And it's just sort of a world where these things exist, because I think the first line is like, Dad, I need a demon or something. 
And so it's just like, well, you know, a demon's big responsibility. You have to key feed it and take care of it. So it's um, my my plan was to actually tell a whole bunch of uh, stories with this family in this world where the supernatural just sort of exists, um, where they sort of they handle um, um, normal problems, but through a supernatural lens. So the first one was going to be sort of school popularity whenever in this this sort of geeky kid with his his pet demon at this this talent competition. And then the next one was supposed to be about his older uh, sister, his teenage sister, um, who gets turned into a vampire. And it was going to be this big metaphor for uh, for STDs and, and premarital sex and all this stuff. And I never wrote it. I just I never got around to doing it because it was like, how many of these are I going to do? I wanted to do one for each member of the family. But it was just I liked the idea of them just handling these everyday problems, these sociological issues that happen to every ordinary family, but with a supernatural uh, bent to them. Um so yeah, I think that story ended up being kind of a a trial run for um, the series that I do today called The Blacklands, which is just a world where the supernatural just exists as a matter of course. So like in the 1940s, these portals started popping up all over the world. And for the past 80 years or so, we've just been living next door to this this dark dimension where that's filled with all these supernatural creatures. And occasionally they get dumped over here. Occasionally people end up over there. But it's just like, what would the everyday world be like if if these things just use it, how would it affect, you know, uh, politics, how would it affect, uh, one, one of the recurring characters that I write about in this world is a guy named Jerry Baldwin and he sells haunted houses for a living because in a world where ghosts exist and haunted houses exist, someone's got to sell them. Right. So it's, um, it, again, it's just, I was trying to be really pragmatic with the series and, and still, of course, still tell interesting and fun stories, but it was just like, yeah, what if we just woke up and it was just like, and the supernatural existing. You know, kids learn about it in school. You know, like it's you're not gonna you're not gonna probably bump into a vampire when you take your dog out for a walk. You know, like they're not. It's still fairly rare, but it but it could happen, right? Like it's just you can't tell your kids anymore that monsters don't exist to sort of make them feel better. It's like no, no, they do exist, and you're gonna learn about it when you're older and old enough in school. You know, like in grade seven or grade eight, they start learning about the Blacklands or something. It's in the history books. So um, yeah, I mean, the Tattletale, this this first story, uh, perhaps ironically was sort of laying the groundwork for me where it was like, I like, I like doing, um, I like sort of taking the supernatural um, and doing your own little spin with it. And I think, I mean, like a lot of people, I was inspired by Stephen King. He's the, he's the elephant in the room, right? How can you not be inspired by him? Because he was, he's everywhere. And one of the things I really admired about him, one of the things I've always admired about him and I'm trying to do in my own fiction is just taking everyday people or everyday situations and you just tweak them with the supernatural, you know? know so because that's what makes it terrifying what makes it terrifying is what makes it relatable you know that's the reason why his characters are, are as memorable as his monsters because he makes them believable and if you believe the people you'll believe what happens to them even if it's vampires or a killer clown in the sewer you know it's 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 drawing those connections to people and you're just reeling them in and they don't even know they're being real. It's like, Hey, I know this guy, he's got a, you know, he's got a phone and he's texting someone like, yeah, I do that every day. Everyone does it every day. And then suddenly you like, again, you, 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 you tweak them. And he's like, Oh, I wasn't following this, this, this trail. It was a fishing line and he was reeling me in. It's just, it's, it's deceptive that way. And I think those are the best stories is you're being reeled in. And you don't even realize it. <laughs> Any stories particularly reel you in? Like, are there any that really just like, just like still catch you even after all this time? I'm, I'm, there's only a, let me go this way because let's go back to imposter syndrome. But the minute you ask me that question, what I, what I hear is, are there any that I'm actually ashamed of? <laughs> so it's, it's like, 
<laughs> that's just the way it happens though so and i was thinking that there's only there's only one or two in there that um obviously i think they're good enough to be in the book but they're like oh wow i can't uh they're not even bad but it's, i'd look at them and i think wow i can write so much better than that these days but again the book is 10 years old right you you would hope that you're you're doing better than that but the ones that i look at and sort of say you know hey yeah that was actually pretty good um i'm doing a uh I'm doing a book launch in Toronto on the 29th at the Little Ghosts uh, bookstore, which is this uh, horror theme bookstore in Toronto. That's all the rage right now. They're, uh, everyone loves a theme bookstore, and and we're horror people, so we like horror theme bookstores. And I am so looking forward to finally checking out this store, and um, and seeing it. And so, in preparation for it, I was looking at some stuff I was going to read from from Every House Is Haunted. So I was looking at the opening of the. Um, a story that closes the collection, the candle. And the reason I was looking at it is because it's a story that I've read a few times uh, at events. Um, it's fairly short, so I can usually get through it all in uh, in about 15 minutes. And um, it's just really, really quietly spooky. It's, I can't even really tell you why without, uh, without, uh, without spoiling it, but the, the setup is just a couple lying in bed trying to figure out if one of them remembered to blow out the candle in the other room. And, um, it's uh, it was inspired by uh, the first floor of a house that my wife and I rented when we first moved to the city where we live now, Peterborough. And all the the, the couple's not really us; it's an older couple um, in their uh, in their sixties. But the all the details are us, you know, the town, the house, and everything. And so it was it was a nice lens into uh, into relationships and and getting old. Uh, or older anyway and, and and even more than that getting older with someone else getting older with uh, with a partner with a with a spouse so i think if i if there was a story of mine that i would i would hope would survive for 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 a long time if, if you have to pick one piece i would say it's it's the candle um whereas something like the house on ashley avenue again a story that i've got a lot of mileage out of it was uh, a finalist for the shirley jackson award it was in Best New Horror of the Year. Um, it was in, um, you know, it was, you know, obviously option for television. Now Raimi's doing it for as film. That one is, uh, again, it's uh, it's the sort of, you know, uh, supernatural investigators. There's a bit of a mythology there. It's sort of the opposite of the, of the candle, where the candle's like a one-shot. It's just a simple setup. It's, a, it's just done for this one sort of effect, whereas the House on Ashley Avenue is is like world building. It's about characters. It's about a whole, a whole, you know, a whole universe that I'm trying to, to develop with these, with these stories that, uh, that I'm still doing to this day. So you mentioned before that this book is uh, 10 years old and that it's being like, uh, it's being uh, reprinted through a cemetery dance, but no changes. Why not? Why not make some updates, tweak some things, you know, make some improvements. I think, and and I do. The funny thing is, I do like when those was sort of a collection is uh, is re released and they add some new stuff. Uh, I always think of the these extra or these expanded editions as kind of like those special edition DVDs you can get with all the features on them, like deleted scenes and alternate endings. And I love that stuff. So there was a temptation to uh, to um, to enhance it, but I think uh, for for two reasons. One, because this book was my first book, and I really wanted it to represent what my first book was, which was again my first five years in publishing. Um, and secondly, the the stories that I would have been really tempted to include in it would have been sort of like the sequels to uh, to the House on Ashley. I mean, there, there's one uh, called Go Fish that you can actually read for free on Tor.com, and it's the second story with these characters. Um, 
and I kind of have plans for those stories. Uh, I didn't want to, I wouldn't even say contaminate. It's not the right word. I didn't want to confuse every house is haunted by putting that story in there. It's there's, there's a natural, um, um, expansion of this in, in another book. These stories need to be in a second, in a second book, a second collection or whatever. It's, it's, it would have felt, um, it would have felt like, uh, a little cheap to me in a way like like you know buy buy the book again so you can get one extra story or two extra stories and again there's nothing wrong with that because again i'm offering no extra stories in this but again i really wanted to be upfront about that and i've been very upfront that this is this is a reprint um but the book had been out of print for a few years the movie is coming so there there is a certain demand for it um the the new cover artwork by by ben baldwin is fantastic and that's why i wrote the new uh the new show notes i did want to include something something extra but I think that was the main reason I, I didn't want to, to mess with it too much. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't like a, maybe if I was George Lucas, you know, I'd go back and I would, you know, I'd put in like a digitally altered Jabba the Hutt into every house is haunted, you know, like, it's like, I don't know why I did that. Like Jabba the Hutt's not in this. I'm going to get sued because I actually don't own the character, but what the hell he's in there, you know, <laughs> every house is Jabba, you know? So I'm guessing not a fan of other release. You know what? It was, I think like a lot of people, I was really impressed with the technology to a certain degree. Some of it didn't look even great, even back in, I think it was, what was it 99 or 97 when he yeah. released the special editions. And I'm a Star Wars fan, so I love all the extra stuff. I love deleted scenes. So as artifacts, I think that they were, it was neat. I loved, I loved the technology as, as it was growing. But I also didn't think that it really was necessary. I think in retrospect, I mean, some of them are, 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 uh, are quite awful, whereas mm-hmm. other things are like, yeah, I guess that's fine. But it wasn't really necessary, you know. It's uh, I think that um, uh, you could have just left them as deleted scenes, you know. And I, I would have been interested in watching them as such. But I mean, obviously, the films didn't need them for them to succeed in their original theatrical runs. So, mm-hmm. but that's 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 George's thing, you know. Like I respect the fact that they're they're his movies, and he wants to do what he wants. That's he's the artist; he gets to make that choice. But as the consumer, I also get to have my opinion, and I say, yeah, this didn't really do it for me, you know. Mm. All right, let's talk about some of the stories themselves. So we have a double murder that draws the attention of an insurance company with an interest in the paranormal, a honeymoon cabin with an, with an unspeakable appetite finally meets its match, a suburban home is transformed into the hunting ground for a new breed of spider, no thank you, never, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> and a nightmarish jazz club at the crossroads of reality and hosts those who can break a deal with the devil for a price. These are some really cool ideas, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, but I am curious as to where the ideas come from. Well, because you was, it was a hard no for you on the spider, I'll, I'll touch on that one, because I, I, I am also hard no on spiders. I'm, I'm an arachnophobe, and, but I can tell you, it's like, I think uh, maybe when you work in horror, whether it's film or, or writing or whatever, you, you're, you're sort of drawn to it. It's sort of a, like a love-hate relationship. So for me... I mean, perfect example, talking about arachnophobia, talk about the film arachnophobia. I went to the theater twice, you know, and saw it. And again, I was terrified on the big screen, man. I mean, it's not just spiders, just spiders on the big screen. That spider is big enough as it is. But again, it was just one of these things where I'm absolutely terrified about it. Therefore, I should write about it. And it would be really neat and tidy to say that I'm exercising my demons or I'm confronting my fears. I am not doing any of that. I just write the stuff that scares me. I figure if it scares me, it's going to scare someone else. That's as that's as deep as I get on that subject matter. But I mean, for me, it's um, it's always trying to find a, another turn of the guard, you know. So the the spider and the story in the book, Charlotte's Frequency, um, 
I like literary reference as much as anyone, and I'm a big fan of Charlotte's Web, uh, the book and the and, and the animated film. So I want to do a bit of a bit of a nod to that because I hadn't really seen that too much from a horror point of view. Um, so it's almost like a, a certain respect for the the, the spider as an, as an adversary and as a as a as a monster of of literature and film because uh, yeah they're just I find them kind of alien and almost terrifying. They're just not like any any other arachnid or or uh, or insect on the planet. There's just something a little freaky about them that I've always found um, absolutely terrifying. And then a story like uh, the Jazz Club one, um, uh, Relax Best, it's called. That's uh, It's a story that features a private investigator character. And a lot like the Tattletale, uh, in retrospect, I see that that was kind of a beta, uh, a beta version, uh, a test run for um, the Blackland series that I write, which features um, a private investigator character named Felix Wren, who investigates supernatural crime and... Uh, I just I love those kinds of characters. I, I love a good um, detective story. I love Supernatural, and I really wanted to do a series that owed as much to detective fiction as it did to horror stuff. Because, you know, I'm a big fan of of, uh, of Clive Barker's Harry Demore stories. Um, you know, and they got people like Jim Butcher who does the the Dresden Files. But I, I really, really wanted to lean into the detective side of thing too, because I'm I'm just just a big a fan of um, Dashiell Hammett. You know, the Continental Op or uh raymond chandler philip marlowe the classic detectives you know i mean the one for me like my my favorite of all was was ross mcdonald's uh lou archer stories he he was the really the first one to give the private investigator character an emotional depth before that um they were kind of just ciphers you know they were just stuff that you know things were happening to to people in the stories philip marlowe was very quippy and great but you don't really know that much about him and Dashiell Hammett's character, I mean, the Continental Op didn't even have a name. You know, he was just the Continental Op. So uh, I, I, I have a lot of respect for them because they are basically created the archetype for what we think of as the, as the private investigator today. But it was Ross McDonald with his Lou Archer novels in the 40s and the 50s um, and into the 60s as well, who really gave that emotional depth and, and that, that, that weight to the PI character. He shoot, he shoots a guy in the in the first book and he's still suffering from like guilt and PTSD and like in like the second book and I think even the third book. Like it's just he 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 came really close to that. He was going to be killed and he ends up in this fight with this guy and kills him. So again, you didn't you wouldn't see that in in other uh in other books where it was just they're just shooting people all the time. It didn't it didn't really matter. So I wanted to bring that emotional depth to a character like the PI and relax best or Felix Wren in my Blackland series. I mean, I'm trying. Whether or not I succeed is really up to the readers, you know. Mm -hmm. All right. To wrap all, all this up, let's talk about introductions. Now, this book is introduced by Paul, you know, I'm going to say it, Paul fucking Tremblay. <laughs> I mean, you know, back-to-back -back legends here. You know, like bookending this episode is two major legends. Of course, Paul Tremblay, I mean, I could go on. He, lengthy list, guys. Check out his books. You're going to mm. love them. What's it mean to you to have him introducing this book? Paul Paul is one of the nicest guys out there and one of the most talented writers writing today. So um, it was nice to have this collection or this this introduction done before his huge success had really happened. You know, like it was just like it wasn't me trying to get an introduction from this big famous writer that I know or didn't know, just reaching out randomly to people. Um, I could not be happier by all the success that Paul has got because for me, it's just deserved. It's like, yeah, I know he was big because I was reading his stuff 10, 15 years ago. You know, this is a talented guy. 
and um you want to hear what a nice guy Paul is. Here, here's a story. He, uh, if he listens to this, he he might remember it, but I, but I definitely do. Um, I was at a reader con one year, <clears throat> which is where I met Paul. Um, it was sort of the gathering places where I met guys like him or and Laird Barron, John Langan, uh, Jeffrey Thomas, lots of great authors um, uh, in that area. So I'm checking into the hotel that year. I think I can't remember if it was my first reader con or my second or third because I was going every year for a while there. And so uh, Paul Paul doesn't check into the hotel because Paul lives in the area. So I'm checking in. I'm, I'm waiting in line. And Paul sort of walks by the uh, – uh, is walking through the lobby. And I was like, hey, Paul. And so he sort of looks over and he waves and then gives me the finger. Flips me off. Just sort of friendly. You're like, hey, you know. You know? It was just like – and so I finished checking in. And I come over and I got like, Paul. I was like – I was like – I was going to ask you if you wanted to write the introduction to my collection. Did you flip me off? And, and, and to his credit, he just – sort of deflates he goes oh man i'm sorry it's like yeah i mean i'd be honored to write your collection or write the introduction to your collection like i totally shot him down and then built it right back up again but it was like again told you what a nice guy was he was just jokingly flipping me off again i wouldn't have cared anyway but i was literally about to ask him if he would write the introduction to my collection <laughs> that's a great story oh my god yeah. that is so and that's, paul, and that's paul to a t that's paul yeah. to a t i mean like he's he's just he's a funny guy he's a fun guy and he's, uh, but he's, he's a really, really nice guy and generous. You know, he's, um, I, I think that he's just one of those people where in my experience with the writing community, there's lots of good people out there. When you know, when you've got someone who's that nice, but they're also that talented, you I mean, you hold on to those people, you know, you just, you want to keep them close because they're, uh, they're special, you know, they absolutely are. Absolutely. Well, Ian, man, it's time to bring this thing to a close. I don't want to. Here we are, man. Here we are. Folks, you know what to do, okay? You go to everyhouseishaunted.com. You'll find the links to his many other sites because he has a bunch. Get this book, October 21st. It comes out there. It's available for pre-order now, so pre-order it. And definitely check out his other books, the Blackland series. Check out his stuff. And pretty soon, someday soon, on on Netflix, led by Sam fucking Raimi, (laughs) the house on Ashley Avenue. And uh, Ian, man, It's been so cool. It's been great talking with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. And with that, this episode has come to a close. As always, folks, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And check out the book, October 21st, Every House is Haunted. 22 stories you can't go wrong. And personally, I cannot wait to see The House on Ashley Avenue on Netflix. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com and check the show out wherever you find your favorite podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.